For joining me for episode 29 of Sassmouth Dames podcast. What we wear in the afterlife, if there is one, and what it looks like presents one of the most interesting style challenges on film. A classic version appears in the Three Stooges short Heavenly Days, directed by Jules White from 1948, which combines the classic white robes and wings for angels who walk on puffy clouds, like their uncle Mortimer. In Powell and Pressburger's A Matter of Life and Death from 1946, Kathleen Byron wears a modified RAF uniform to greet the soldiers as they enter the pearly gates. She wears the most inspired victory rolls in her hair that ap- approximate a golden halo, one tinged with no-nonsense, ready-for-business style that women wore to wage the war against fascism. We see heaven, though, as a grim courtroom stocked with stern historical figures. In Joseph L. Mankiewicz's The Ghost and Mrs. Muir from 1947, Rex Harrison's ghost wears his daily costume as a sea captain, a polo neck, peacoat, and seafaring cap. He looks gruff and world-weary, which tells us that the novel he whispers to the widow is probably a banger. I know more than a few writers who would put up with a cranky ghost if they could get a bestseller out of him. In Topper from 1937, Norman MacLeod's production retains the designer evening wear that the society couple wear to nightclubs. Constance Bennett's evening gown with dolman sleeves is one I wouldn't mind being trapped in for all of eternity. In Ernest Lubitsch's Heaven Can Wait from 1943, the recently deceased are in their everyday attire. Rene Hubert designs an officious suit for Laird Krieger's Lord of the Underworld. His Satan looks more like he's having tea with the queen rather than someone who weighs accounts for the afterworld. Instead of fire and brimstone, his office is a beautiful set designed by Thomas Little. Pillars grow red as new candidates descend a staircase that leads to an ultra-modern desk and furnishing. The film may be a period piece, but Satan has his eye on mid-century style. Who can forget those stylish angels in Fritz Lang's Lilium from 1934, who come for Charles Boyer in black suits and four-button jackets that reach the thigh, fedoras, and smudged eyeliner? They are as goth as Conrad Veet's Cesar in The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari from 1920. And Fritz Lang's Heaven is a downhill magistrate's office that looks designed for paying parking tickets rather than granting eternal reward or damnation. For the subject of this podcast episode, Vincent Minnelli's Cabin in the Sky from 1943, featuring an all-African-American cast, is a standout of afterlife design. The Portal to Heaven is a series of pearly white stairs created by set designer Cedric Gibbons. They no doubt informed a matter of life and death three years later. Best of all are the costumes from Irene. Heaven and Hell each have their uniforms. For the emissaries sent from below, led by Lucifer Jr., played by Rex Ingram, the men wear bellboy uniforms with brass buttons and Hotel Hades embroidered on the left. Lucifer Jr. boasts a higher rank, which lends itself to a more ornate button design. Ingram's jacket has three rows of buttons rather than the single row of the other attendants. 
The more I look at the way the three rows fan out, they call to mind the trines of a pitchfork. He pulls out an actual pitchfork in one scene, but the jacket is a bit of foreshadowing. The demons have their hair twisted into horns on each side of their head, which is far more effective than corny red horns. For the visitors from heaven above, men wear pristine white military uniforms, embellished with a gold braid trim, immaculate feather epaulets, a gold belt, and gold stripes on the outer trouser seam. Led by Kenneth Spencer, the Lord Squad appears robed in what the Bahamian army might wear, suits for a tropical paradise. And Spencer's deep baritone echoes the word from on high with gravity to match. The devils later have a change of clothes, too. A room in the underworld marked Hotel Hades' idea room with Lucifer Jr.'s name on the door. Sinners care more about what they wear, don't they? When the fellows unwind, they're lying around the office, dressed for a steam or a massage, in super-thick terry cloth robes in bold geometric prints. They wear thick white towels around their necks like a cravat. They look more like country clubs patrons than hotel porters. But their job has other obvious perks like air conditioning and fine cigars. Presumably, there are women in the afterlife, but we don't see them sent out with messages. Perhaps after all the unpaid labor on earth, you know, the washing and mending clothes, raising vegetables and tending chickens, cooking the meals from scratch, and relentless intercessions for the immortal souls of the men they are married to, perhaps in heaven they get to put their feet up. At least you would hope so. As good as the heavenly and netherworld costumes are, the earthbound variety are truly inspired. We get the biggest surprise from Irene and the wardrobe for Miss Georgia Brown, the man trap that Lena Horne plays. The obvious choice would have been to put her in a red dress as the embodiment of the Scarlet Woman. Even in black and white, remember, red dresses became major plot points. Joan Crawford dreams of a perfect beaded red dress in the Bride Ward Red from 1937 until she realizes that society women regard it as cheap and vulgar. But as a poor woman who sings in a dingy nightclub, she's starved for bright hues as much as a good dinner. In Jezebel, from 1938, Betty Davis is shamed by po-faced Henry Fonda for wearing a red dress to a ball where everyone traditionally wears white. She doesn't want to simper around like a child in white. She wants bold color, and she pays a heavy price for it. Irene doesn't go for the obvious with Georgia Brown. Instead, she creates a look that is provocative, yet one that does not ring alarm bells or invite simple assumptions. Irene employs a monochrome palette to highlight the double standards for women, or perhaps it also calls to mind that Georgia Brown isn't all good or all bad, and that duality rests with the beholder. When she first appears on screen, Lena Horne is wrapped in a silk dressing gown, creamy white on the outside lined with glossy black on the inside. Irene outfits Lena Horne in a white crop top, cut above the waist, and tied in the middle, like the ones that Edith Head made for Barbara Stanwyck in The Lady Eve from 1941, and that she would later use for Ingrid Bergman in Notorious from 1946. Just a slim patch of bearskin shows. It's enough. Patterned with a few black polka dots, the top underscores our sense of the character as a little bit wild, but not at all corrupt or forsaken. 
paired with a slim black satin wraparound skirt, Georgia Brown appears like a woman who has a healthy appetite for fun. Why should she turn down what men have to offer? With her hair rolled up and a magnolia blossom exchange for a prim hat, she's without a doubt a screen siren, but Lena Horne looks as proper as a convent school pupil. If there's sin, it's in the men who desire her. When Georgia Brown benefits from Little Joe's windfall, underneath the ostrich feather wrap she wears to a nightclub, she wears a white satin dress with a gold vine accent that looks like she's attending a dance in a college rather than a symbol of a fallen woman. One of the women in the club tells her that dress will be ahead of fashion 100 years from now. When other women approve of your outfit publicly, it's a reassurance that you've hit the style mark on the nose. If she had worn something that was obviously sexy, the women would have been more likely to hiss or disapprove. Set against the woman who has a direct hotline to the Lord, Georgia Brown initially looks like a villain. Perhaps the antagonism between women in the plot bears responsibility for the friction on set between Ethel Waters and Lena Horne, which I'll tell you more about later. Cabin in the Sky could have struck a very narrow bargain for women had it cleaved to the Madonna-Whore dichotomy that informs the characters at the start. Instead, Vincent Minnelli complicates that easy storyline. Neither woman is quite so good or quite so bad as society or heaven and its exiles would have it. Ethel Waters' Petunia might have a direct hotline to God, but she knows a thing or two about dice. In one scene, when gamblers come to call on her husband, she's wearing a a kitty foil dress that Ginger Rogers popularized in the film that won her an Oscar for playing a plucky typist. The kitty foil dresses were made in either block colors or prints. They all shared a starched white collar and cuffs, which created a strong frame for a woman's face. It made women look capable, polished, and efficient. It meant they were business-minded. Ethel models a cheerful print on her version. It's the most becoming of the simple day dresses she owns, and it's the perfect thing for her to wear when she bests two crooks who try to put little Joe in harm's way. She puts the gamblers through the ringer faster than a basket of laundry. Ethel Waters has the unenviable task of playing the good woman. The fallen woman is always more fun to play and to watch. After a day of hard work, she spends her spare time trying to keep Joe out of the boiler room below. Think about it. You have a direct line to the man upstairs, and you fritter it away on a man who won't fix the roof, who cheats, and loses his money on the calamity cubes. His idea of a romantic gesture is to buy her a washing machine for her birthday. And the minute Joe has an unexpected stroke of good luck, he believes that it's his just reward for being a good husband for about a week. The devils below reason, give a man money, watch him act funny. And they send little Joe a winning ticket to the Irish sweepstakes. Petunia has a chance to shine and get a little revenge, though. As the old saying goes, still waters run deep. Petunia turns up at John Henry's nightclub and performs a showstopper. She saunters into the club wearing a dress that looks straight from Marlena Dietrich's wardrobe for The Devil is a Woman from 1935. Ethel's Petunia wears a gold lace filigree mantilla and matching bodice over a satin skirt with two front napkin pleats. 
She sings a version of Lena Horne's song with her skirt hiked up just a little bit, but that oozes the sexual promise of a mature woman who finally knows what she wants and how to get it. Men like Domino have to drag their tongues off the floor. The contrast between their versions of the song, Honey in the Honeycomb, challenge popular views about women's virtue. Lena Horne looks so innocent and childlike when she sings the song, as though she doesn't really understand the meaning of the lyrics, although she likes the sound of them, like in the way she relishes the drawling out bees at the end of the first verse. Lena's in a white dress while Ethel wears the clinging gold gown that makes the men go wild. Lena Horne said that Minnelli suggested that the best way to react to Ethel Waters' mighty indignation in the role as the wrong wife was to play it as innocent as a baby. Lena's eyes go wide. She avoids the vamp act of bedroom eyes and a slinky gait. Minnelli's take on how to play the role proves spot on. She doesn't really compete with Ethel Waters for being sexy as she sits on the bar and sings the song. They have completely different interpretations of the song, which shows the bounty of their talent, but it also presents an opportunity for Ethel Waters to bump and grind a little bit on the dance floor. She's all appetite, and the men do indeed swarm like bees. I'm relieved to see her have respite from being a scold. Why shouldn't she have a chance to order a double King Kong and dance? And not five minutes into her lapse from piety, and the devil and angels take bets on Petunia following Joe to the boiler room. It's really a shame that Celestial Account accrues so little leeway. Hollywood didn't know what to do with Lena Horne. She managed to avoid being cast in the maid roles that had been forced on many talented African-American women in the 1930s. Women such as Teresa Harris, Louise Beavers, Hattie McDaniel, and Nina Mae McKinney. She wanted to hold out for more complex characters. In her memoir, she vents frustration with walk-on parts where she leaned against a pillar and sang a song. Not only were her musical numbers unconnected to the story and didn't involve much acting, they were designed to be edited out to appease cinema owners in the South who felt that their patrons would be offended by an African-American woman singing. Lena recalled that the studios didn't know how to light her or how to apply makeup for her. When she was initially cast in Cairo from 1942, she was excited that even though it was a part of a maid, it was a real role with a love story attached. The leads were Jeanette McDonald and Robert Young. Lena would play the wife of Eddie Anderson, who is known to audiences as Rochester. They would play a married couple who were servants, but they had their own romantic intrigues. MGM crew members said that her features were too small and were tough to photograph, which makes no sense at all. Then they insisted that Lena's skin tone should match Rochester's, so they kept smearing layer after layer of dark makeup on her. The test she made was a disaster. Lena wrote that she looked like a white person in blackface. In the end, she didn't do the picture. Ethel Waters replaced Lena Horne in the cast. The studio's makeup challenge didn't end well. Lena reports that they developed a pancake shade called Light Egyptian that would darken her skin to the shade that producers thought she should be. Unfortunately, in practice, it was used to darken white actresses so that they could play black or mixed-race roles. 
light Egyptian made it possible to reduce the number of roles available to women of color. Vincent Minnelli began his career directing on Broadway. He went to Hollywood to stage musical sequences for film in MGM. Cabin in the Sky was the first project that MGM offered to him to direct solo. It was a big opportunity for him to prove himself and move up the ranks to the director's chair. Minnelli threw himself into planning the project. In his memoir, I Remember It Well, published in 1974, he discusses how opposed he was to a stationary camera, which had largely been used as the norm in Hollywood during musical numbers. He also felt that it was repetitious and conservative to use alternating angles after a master shot, nor did he want to rely on dialogue to provide movement and action. Minnelli emphasized show over tell in his directorial debut. Minnelli also disposed of a fade-to-black transition, which he felt impeded the action. He planned a moving camera for his first picture and used one for every other picture he made. Ethel Waters was cast to reprise her stage role. Minnelli noted that Ethel Waters had been cast in his first Broadway musical, At Home Abroad, and in his own words, she became my talisman. He felt Cabin in the Sky would be a success because she was in the production. He wanted Julie Wilson, who had played Little Joe on stage for the film, but Metro vetoed his choice, reasoning that Rochester had a bigger star profile with white audiences. A scene with Lena Horne in a bubble bath for a song was cut by the production board for being too racy. Minnelli noted that he used a bubble bath because it was a dime store glamour available to women of any means. One day, Minnelli was looking at a print with MGM producer Arthur Freed, and although he could not recall which one of them had the idea, they decided to see what would happen if they reprocessed the film in sepia. He said the transformation was magical and that a deep tint of velvety patina developed a flattering effect on all of the actors. The picture came in ahead of schedule, and he again credited Ethel Waters. He wrote, My good luck charm came through. Ethel translated her bravura outside stage, stage performance into a more naturalistic film portrayal. She owed it to her expressive face and eyes. Ethel, however, claims she owed it all to God. She has a direct pipeline to him, you know. Lena Horne isn't very kind to Ethel Waters in her memoir. She talks about their relationship while still wearing the blinders of youth. She doesn't admit how hard it must have been for Ethel Waters as the star to have her steal the spotlight and all the attention. Lena and Vincent had an affair during the production, which probably didn't help Ethel feeling hard done by. When Lena started in the Cotton Club working seven nights a week when she was only 16 years old, Ethel Waters was a star on that stage. She doesn't really give Ethel Waters the credit she deserves as an influence on her own career. I'll close the episode with an excerpt by Lena from Lena Horn. For quite a while, all these people kept reporting to me about how difficult Miss Waters was in general, and that in particular, she resented my appearing in the picture. She thought others deserved the part more, and that I was part of the plot against her, and that she was sure that the studio bosses had concocted. Maybe they were unhappy with her, but it seemed to me that it would have been out of character for them to hire her and spend the money to do the picture, and then turn around and make trouble for her on set. And I just couldn't believe that she would dislike me without knowing me at all. 
Miss Waters did have one legitimate complaint against me. She was supposed to do a parody of me doing the Honey in the Honeycomb number. In it, she drops her righteousness, her good woman attitude, and sings a steamy, hot version of the song in an attempt to show up the hollowness of her values. Of course, I had recorded the song before we started production, as we always did, so it could be played back on set when it came to stage the number. Miss Waters went up to the sound department and heard my version of the song. She claimed that I had imitated her and that it would be impossible for her now to parody the song. If I had imitated her, it was completely unconscious. She was a great singer, someone to be admired, and of course some of her style had come into that number. I'd worked hard to get it there so parody would come off. Still, sometimes it's hard to see things that way. I'm always being told that some young singer is doing me nowadays, and I'm not complimented, even though my husband tells me I should be. With all this tension building up, I was prepared to be very, very careful when we finally started working together. While the picture was shooting, I did not see much of Vincent. Like most directors at work on a picture, he used the nights to prepare for the next day's shooting. But we did talk occasionally about how I should play my scenes with Miss Waters. Up until then, I had done nothing but fun comedy stuff with Rochester and Louis Armstrong. Now, Vincent suggested that the only way to compete against Miss Waters' intensity was to be terribly helpless, almost babyish, when I confronted her. He thought it would make a good contrast with the hoydenish way I had played the comedy and musical scenes, and that since she had the basically sympathetic part, the good woman trying to protect her marriage, this would be the best way for me to give my part a bit of complexity. It might have worked except for one accident. The day before our scene was scheduled, I was rehearsing a big dancing entrance into the nightclub with Rochester. We were to arrive in a Cadillac and make our way through a big crowd and then do this production number involving a huge number of people. Just as we started to do a full rehearsal with the music, I twisted my ankle and heard a snapping sound. Rochester made a joke about it later. He said Ethel Waters had put a hex on me. Hex or not, they carried me down to the studio infirmary and the doctors there sent me downtown to a bone man. He discovered that I had chipped a bone in my instep, and he put me into a cast. It was painful and cumbersome, and of course it meant extra trouble for everyone, restaging musical numbers, setting up difficult camera angles so my plaster cast wouldn't show, and so on. For example, Honey in the Honeycomb now had to be done with me perched on a bar instead of moving through the set. This caused a certain amount of the attention to be focused on me, which was just exactly what I did not want to happen when I was working with Miss Waters. The atmosphere was very tense and and exploded when a prop man brought me a pillow to put under my sore ankle. Miss Waters started to blow like a hurricane. It was an all-encompassing outburst, touching everyone and everything that got in its way. Though I or my ankle may have been the immediate cause of it, it was actually directed at everything that had made her life miserable, the whole system that had held her back and exploited her. We had to shut down the set for the rest of the day. During the evening, apparently, some of the people at the studio were able to talk to her and calm her down, because the next day we were able to go on with the picture. We finished it without speaking. The silence was not sullen. It was just that there was nothing to say after that, nothing that could make things right between us. Thanks very much for listening.
Join me next time for episode 30 when I talk about Eve Arden in The Unfaithful from 1947. Thanks very much. I got an island in the Pacific And everything about it is terrific I got the sun too